namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa Buddham Dhammam Sangam Namasami So this is a very beautiful sutta about mindfulness of the body. Kaya Gata Sati Sutta. Kaya is the body, Sati is mindfulness. And mindfulness of the body doesn't mean that you necessarily have perfect posture or that you're not clumsy. But mindfulness of the body is the mind being attentive to the feeling, the connection, the embodiment of this body. So if we're mindful, we're aware of what we're doing, we're present, present moment awareness. But the Buddha says a little bit more about it than that. It has been said by the Blessed One who knows and sees, accomplished and fully enlightened, that mindfulness of the body, when developed and cultivated, is of great fruit and great benefit. And how is mindfulness of the body developed and cultivated so that it is of great fruit and great benefit? Here a bhikkhu gone to the forest, or to the root of a tree, or to an empty hut, sits down, having folded his legs crosswise, set his body erect, and established mindfulness in front of him, ever mindful he breathes in, mindful he breathes out. Breathing in long, he understands, I breathe in long, or breathing out long, he understands, I breathe out long. Breathing in short, he understands, I breathe in short. Breathing out short, he understands, I breathe out short. He trains himself thus. I shall breathe in experiencing the whole body. He trains thus. I shall breathe out experiencing the whole body. He trains thus. I shall breathe in tranquilizing the bodily formation. He trains thus, thinking, I shall breathe out tranquilizing the bodily formation. As he abides thus, diligent, ardent, and resolute, his memories and intentions based on the household life are abandoned. With their abandoning, his mind becomes steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness and concentrated. That is how a bhikkhu develops mindfulness of the body. And then the Buddha talks about the four postures. Again, when walking, a bhikkhu understands, I am walking. When standing, he understands, I am standing. When sitting, he understands, I am sitting. When lying down, he understands, I am lying down. Or he understands accordingly however his body is disposed. 
So even though the Buddha gives only four postures, these are just examples. The body could be in many other postures, but the main point is that we bring awareness to the posture and then we tranquilize the body according to whatever posture. We abandon thoughts of our daily life, whatever occupations we may have, and then we make the mind come to singleness, concentrated and fully present with awareness. This is the mindfulness that we hope to develop. Then the Buddha talks about full awareness. Again, because a bhikkhu is one who acts in full awareness when going forward and returning, who acts in full awareness when looking ahead and looking away, who acts in full awareness when flexing and extending his limbs, who acts in full awareness when wearing his robes and carrying his outer robe and bowl, who acts in full awareness when eating, drinking, consuming food and tasting, who acts in full awareness when defecating or urinating, who acts in full awareness when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent. As he abides thus diligent, ardent, and resolute, his memories and intentions based on the household life are abandoned. With their abandoning, his mind becomes steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness, and concentrated. The steadying internally that's a very big one, because the thoughts are always whipping up a storm. But the mindfulness, the present moment awareness, is always steadying that internally, calming it. That is how a bhikkhu develops mindfulness of the body and full awareness. And then the Buddha talks about the foulness of the body contemplations. We don't have a lot of time, so maybe we should stop there if you have any questions. I was just struck by the verb understand. Why was that verb used in that context? I don't have the Pali in front of me, but it could be jamati, knowledge of, or focusing on, and it depends if that verb is just knowing or it's knowing in a way that you pick up the object and you, you're inspecting it, investigating it. So it's not just looking at it, it's not just touching it or being aware that you're holding it, but your mind is fully present and connecting to the knowledge. So there's a certain activity of the understanding is where the wisdom component comes in wisely knowing, attentively knowing. It's an appropriate attention. There would be more quietness and more presence of mind. So usually when we're busy with household tasks or getting somewhere, driving, it's very difficult to really bring our minds to what we're doing because we're thinking. We're in the past or the future. So the present moment awareness is the wisdom that precedes insight.
And if we have enough understanding of the body in relationship to the mind, and the mind in relationship to present moment awareness, then we can get a sense that it's impermanent, imperfect, and impersonal. It's empty. So there's no one there. But usually we think, oh, I am holding this. But with understanding, we would have a greater understanding, a deeper knowledge, which is more in the direction of freeing oneself from attachment to what we're doing. It's just a movement, it's just a posture, it's just the body in action. It's not me, it's not mine, and it's not forever. It's like a passing show in grief. I have, so at the moment, when I was meditating, sometimes my back is hurt, and I shouldn't have ignored that. It depends. If you're feeling a lot of pain, and you want to move to release the pain, you have to be wise, because you might think, well, I have to sit absolutely still, and if you sit like that for a very long time, you could injure yourself. So you have to be wise and discerning. If you can move very mindfully, but if you just keep moving every time it hurts, that doesn't work. But the middle way is, okay, you sat there for 45 minutes in excruciating pain. Maybe it's time to move a little bit and see. Otherwise, it could cause a lot of ill will and disturbance in the mind. But if your concentration is really good, then you can focus, you can use the pain as a way of focusing, because pain is very compelling. So I've had very strong pain and tried to move away from it, and then I was taught early on, use the pain as your object of meditation. And that was very difficult to do, but I forced myself because I was told to do it. So I thought, I have to learn something. And I watched the pain, and I watched it, and watched it, and it was screaming in agony. And I kept looking at the very center of the painful feeling. It was in the knee. Painful, 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 painful. And after maybe a half an hour, there was no pain. The pain became just sensation. And it broke up into a vague feeling of, well, where is it? Because I thought it was in the knee, and then it just seemed to be everywhere. And then it wasn't pain anymore. It was just pulsation, huge pulsation. One of the biggest breakthroughs in my early years was that, watching the pain. But then you could also permanently injure your knee. So, you know, I was young. I could deal with it, but now I wouldn't do that. So with pain, were you, you were watching it, were you breathing into it? If you talk in terms of technique, appropriate attention really cannot be defined by any technique. It doesn't matter what I do, what you do, 
The Buddha never says breathe into anything. He just talks about breath awareness as one of your ways of bringing attention to your body or to your present moment experience. But some people don't develop appropriate attention with the breath. They use the sound of silence or they use some other approach like full body contact sensation. So it's not like breathing into it, but it's just fullness of attention, appropriateness of focus, connecting. It's an openness. It's not resisting it. So it just might be so aware of it that it arises. The object may no longer be where it is. Like you're not looking, you're looking internally. The mind can be present even if you're flying in an airplane. You're moving very fast, and the clouds, you don't notice. It just all looks like one thing. So it's not the speed that we're at. It's more just the present moment. We're not thinking. We're in the body, or we're just with full awareness. So we're knowing, we're understanding that we're knowing. There is an engagement with the present moment. And maybe that's breathing into. You're breathing into the present moment, or you're being with, you're associating with the experience that's arising in consciousness, rather than being distracted by the snoring of the person sitting behind you, <laughs> or the coughing, and you're scared because you're going to get COVID. You get a critical mind, why don't they put on a mask? But you're not watching, you're not with your experience, your thinking. What's the relationship between awareness and the busyness? Like, you know, I have this to do, I'm aware that I have this to do, but I'm focusing on the task as opposed to my body. The thinking mind is often believing that it's aware, but it, it's full of thought. And the thing is that you can switch between being aware of thinking and thinking very fast. But that awareness is not continuous. And the insights develop through continuous awareness. Broken up awareness does not give you, it's like, you want to take a picture? Well, if you click the mechanism, but your camera is busy going back and forth, you get a blur. So I think awareness of experience that's mixed up with thinking will be blurred. It won't be focused. Does that make sense? It does, but it sounds like a lifetime project. <laughs> it is, yeah. So to be aware, we have to observe in a way that we're not taking our awareness away from the knowing, that understanding that there is awareness and that the thoughts are passing through. If we're actually thinking, the thoughts won't have much pickup. They won't get us anywhere. It's just, you'll start a sentence, but then awareness will move to the next thought, the next neuron synapse in the brain, whatever it's creating. It's just going to sweep it past. So you'll never finish your thoughts properly. I mean, you might. And then awareness will poke its head up. 
again. But it won't have the momentum of a continuity which gives it the ability to really pick up the present moment and rub it like a lamp, a genie is rubbing the lamp and it rubs and rubs and then suddenly it bursts into flame. Illumination of the mind is like a fire and you have to rub and rub and rub until there's heat. So this continuity is like the rubbing of that awareness, rubbing out our delusion. Our delusion is so thick that if we only rub a little, nothing happens. But if we rub a lot, it bursts into flame. Is that the enlightenment? That would be enlightenment. Illumination. So then there's a fire that burns away all delusion. But it's very difficult to do that with a mind that is out of balance. So the thinking, you can think for a while, but eventually you might get to a thought that really upsets you or that excites you. And then there's no more balance. But if we're aware of our thinking and aware of our passion, like or dislike, then we can get to the middle way. Letting go of liking, letting go of disliking, staying in the middle, aware of likes and dislikes, but not grasping anything. So the middle way is just, a, it's like walking a tightrope. It's very narrow, and it takes quite a lot of skill to stay on it, especially in daily life. Because there's so much to do. There's so much to be aware of. Like, if you want to get up and walk, there are so many things that you need to be able to do to be able to stay balanced and use your feet, which you can still use skillfully. But for us to walk the Eightfold Noble Path, it's just like that. We have to put into place so many aspects of our me mechanism, our mental awareness, our sharpness, our willingness to be present because there's so much else to distract us and giving ourselves, like, not breathing into it, but surrendering ourselves to what is happening. Giving ourselves to it with our heart. It's not a casual, oh, well, I'm just going to be aware. But what else is happening? Or when you listen to the news and you keep going from channel to channel, there's, we don't use radios, but, you know, your mouse clicking from one website to another. Oh, this one will give better news or better weather. Or what's the best app of whatever you're looking for? It's a clicking generation. We're just caught up with click, click, click. What's next? What's next? What's next? But that's always in the future. And it's not content with what we have. And the present moment is where the realization comes. It doesn't come in the future. So how can this digitally driven world help us to get enlightened? It's getting harder. People are more distracted than ever. I was watching 
The other day, we came to the market, and people are walking, but they're on the phone. <laughs> yeah. But they're walking around. Well, what if you bump into somebody else's walking? It just, just strikes me as odd, but is this safe? And then people drive and do that. That's even more scary. So we're being deprived of whatever ability we develop to pay attention because of this thing that we all carry now, almost. You know, it helps to coordinate so much. It's just a good tool. But like all good things, they have their downfall and we have to be mindful of that. And it's really good to be able to press a button and say, help. But I think the most important button that we can press is mindfulness. Press the mindfulness button, and that will be a great help. Mindful of pain. Just be aware of it and take care of it. Or mindfulness of burning the food when you're cooking. Be aware of it and take care of it. Don't eat it. It's not healthy to eat burnt food. I think there's an app for that. <laughs> <laughs> when I was living in New Zealand, and I was on alms round with my bowl in a small village walking for alms, I'd been invited to someone's house to receive the food. I was so excited. And I thought, I'm just like in the days of the Buddha. I'm walking in the village with my alms bowl, and someone has made an invitation. I'm going to go to her house and knock on the door, and she's going to offer me a meal in my bowl. I was so happy because this difficult conditions for a woman on the path, and all the dogs were lined up for me. So I'm walking, and I come to her house, and I ring the doorbell, and she opens the door, and she brings the pot, and she starts to put the food in my bowl, and she says, I'm so sorry the rice is burnt. <laughs> ah, it was funny. It was just, really? It all lines up. <laughs> so she gave me burnt rice, plus some other stuff. So I, I chanted a blessing, and I went back to my little cabin, and I bowed to the shrine. I sat down, and I chanted again, and I took the spoon and tried to eat the food, and it was unedible. It was really burnt. And all the stuff that was in it, that she added, like the carrots and all the other stuff, was mixed with the rice. It was so burnt that I couldn't eat any of it. And so it was such a teaching. You think, what is perfection? You have the perfect condition. But then life brings you another condition, and it's not perfect. And it's the biggest teaching of all. Because the insight into letting go. Letting go. This is, yeah, you have the perfect conditions. Can you let go of having the perfect conditions? So that was a real good one. And then the next day I got a meal. But the meal that I got was a much bigger teaching and teacher than any perfect meal would have been. Nice rice and veggies, so what? Full tummy, so what? 
still a bit of delusion. You think you think you have perfect conditions. You have no perfect conditions in samsara. Because as perfect as they may be, they don't last, they evaporate. Or they become spoiled by conditions. So this is for me the real teaching. But I really appreciate having the ability to walk the path as the bhikkhuni in the Buddha's dispensation and to be subjected to the unknown. You never know. None of us know who's going to come, what you're going to get. We're all mendicants in a way. Every one of us is a beggar in terms of what's going to happen in our own life. We don't know what we're facing, what we're going to face, do we? We do know that it's impermanent. But we don't know how we're going to meet tomorrow or how tomorrow is going to greet us. And that's where the faith comes in, where the mindfulness comes in where the understanding comes in and where the insight appears. So the gratitude of mind is the most excellent state to have the faith, to have the gratitude, to have the courage and the trust and to keep going no matter what, whatever it is. We show up ready to receive it, and trying to be wise. How shall we receive this? What's the wisest course to take? I'll stop there for today. Thank you.